Dear Father, our greatest desire this morning and this week is to come face to face with you and with no veil in between. Please help us to see you clearly, to see your face, to see your character. May we come to see and to believe that you are exactly as you revealed yourself to be 2,000 years ago. We love you. Amen. Well, I'd like to uh, begin this morning just by asking you a question to think about. What would you say is our most important belief? If I were to give you a piece of paper and you had to write down, uh, this is number one, your most important belief. Who God is? All right. Any other suggestions? What's the sanctuary? Okay, that's our topic on Friday. Yes. That Jesus is coming back? Redemption? The Sabbath? Okay, these are all uh, wonderful suggestions. Uh, but let me, let me ask it in somewhat a different way uh, by describing to you a group of people. And you tell me if they sound like they're on the right track. Um, these people were um, very, very faithful in their church attendance. I mean, you could really count on them to always be there. And as a part of that, they were also very faithful in their offerings and tithing. I mean, they were just very, very careful about doing these things exactly right. And they had also organized very effective mission and outreach projects, trying to reach the world with a message about God. And these people also... Uh, were very serious Bible students. They spent a lot of time reading the Bible. And out of this um, time spent in studying the Bible, they'd gained some very, very special insights in terms of prophecy. And based on their study of the Bible, they had come to the conclusion that God's law was something that was very important. And as a part of that, they came to see that the Sabbath was also something of special importance. Now, just these people that I've described, would you assume that, uh, you know, they sound like pretty good candidates for the kingdom, wouldn't you say? That's a pretty good list of, of things that these people were observing. But these people, of course, lived on the earth about 2,000 years ago and were the people that Jesus himself came to. Let, let's just go through this list one more time. Um, were they faithful in their church attendance? Absolutely. Jesus met with them, right, in the synagogue many times. But uh, that his message to them sounded like heresy. And on one occasion during church, they interrupted and tried to throw him off a cliff. Uh, his message seemed uh, so uh, out of place to them. All right, were these people very careful in their tithes and offerings? And of course they were. Jesus commented on this in uh, Matthew 23. You're hopeless, you religion scholars and Pharisees, frauds. You keep meticulous account books tithing on every nickel and dime you get, but on the meat of God's law, things like fairness and compassion and commitment, the absolute basics, you carelessly take it or leave it. All right, what about mission and outreach? Yes, Jesus commented on how zealous they were in this. He said, you sail the seas and cross whole countries to win one convert 
And when you succeed, you make him twice as deserving of going to hell as you yourselves are. That's in Matthew 23. That would be hard to take, wouldn't it, if you were involved in mission and outreach projects and Jesus came along with those words. All right, what about Bible study? Did they study their Bibles? Yes, they did. And Jesus again commented on this. He said in John 5:39, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. Okay, they were, they were keeping a good list of external things. What about prophecy? Well, uh, Ellen White has some interesting comments about these people and, uh, in a couple places. Once, uh, in one place she says, they knew that the Savior was soon to come, but they expected him to be a mighty king who would make them rich and great. And later on in Desire of Ages, uh, she said, it was well known that the 70 weeks of Daniel's prophecy covering the Messiah's advent were nearly ended and all were eager to share in that era of national glory which was then expected. So it would almost sound as if they had the first coming pinned down better than we have the second coming. But when God showed up, they prepared to welcome him. Okay, what about the law? Of course, they tried hard, didn't they? Very hard to keep the law. But Paul makes the summary comment here in Romans 9.31, but the Jews who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. All right, and then on the last point, the Sabbath. And this verse really is almost too painful to read here. In John 19, verse 31, Then the Jews, since it was the day of Sabbath preparation, and so the bodies wouldn't stay on the crosses over the Sabbath, for it was a high holy day that year, petitioned Pilate that their legs be broken to speed death and the bodies taken down. And so as just unthinkable as it is, they tried to hasten the death of God in the flesh so that they could make it home before sundown to keep the Sabbath to worship the God that they had unknowingly just crucified. I mean, that's really insane, isn't it? Uh, but I should say that uh, having said all of that, that my point is not to put down any of these things. I mean, the law, the Sabbath, Bible reading, prophecy, these are all important and good things. But does it help us as we try to prioritize what's number one? I mean, what's number one on your list? Now, having uh, listened to the description of these people, uh, and if you look there on the, the handout, and I hope you all have one, the first quote here from John 1, 10 and 11, he, Jesus, was in the world and the world came into existence through him, yet the world didn't recognize him. He went to his own people, and his own people did not accept him. And so as we look at these very, very careful Sabbath keepers of 2,000 years ago, uh, how, how are we in a better position? How are we better prepared to recognize and to welcome the coming of God than they were? What's different? Well, I think it'd be helpful here. Uh, Paul makes a comment here, very insightful, I think, in Romans 10, verse 2, the next one on your list. He said about these people, I can assure you that they are deeply devoted to God. And they really were, but their devotion is not based on true knowledge. Now, this knowledge would seem to be key. What knowledge do you think they were deprived of that, uh, that led them to miss the Savior, what knowledge? Jesus, 
And specifically, Jesus was not, not known by name up to that point, but a knowledge of what about Jesus? His character, the kind of person he is, and I think that's getting right to it. Yes. His coming. Of course, they knew he was coming. He came right on time. But yet they still, this, I mean, their picture of God was such that when he showed up, they were, it was easily easy for them to dismiss him because this is not the kind of God that we know, right? And um, his true mission, exactly. They did not know God. And to know God would mean to know what about God? He came to reveal the character of a God. Exactly right. And I think we get to the heart of this here in John 17, verse 3. Jesus, at the end of his life, uh, just such important words here, where he said, this is eternal life. Now, let's just stop right there. Um, I mean, if you ask, I think, anyone from kindergarten up through adult uh, Sabbath school in these tents here, what is eternal life? Well, it's living forever, right? That's eternal life. Uh, but that's not how Jesus defined eternal life. Jesus defined eternal life by its quality, not by its duration. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. How do we know God? By Jesus the revealer of the character of God. And that is eternal life. And these words to know all the way through the Bible have a very special meaning. To know means intimate, personal, relational. Okay, That is the meaning of these words, to know. And it even describes the physical intimacy between a man and a woman. Adam knew Eve. Right? How did he know Eve? Well, they had a son. Okay, it was a very personal, uh, intimate relationship described. But uh, what is so incredible is that this, this to know, this knowledge is also used to describe our relationship with God. Look at these words of David in Psalms 139. He longs for this, where he says, Examine me, O God, and know my mind and discover my thoughts. Okay, he wants God to know him intimately, personally, that they have a close relationship. Okay, but notice it goes the other way. In Psalms 9, verse 10, those who know you, Lord, will trust you. And so the Bible describes this amazing thing. God knows us intimately. We in turn know him intimately. This relationship develops, trust. And at the basis of any relationship, you know, just between a husband and wife, uh, is also an intimate knowledge of that person's character, right? And this relationship, this friendship develops. And in this process, an amazing thing develops. God in us. And we have the mind of Christ. And I think that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 2. So this is the ideal. This is the face-to-face -face relationship that Moses had with God. This is the experience Enoch had as he walked with God. And I wanted to read just on that face-to-face -face relationship that Moses had. Uh, these words of Ellen White in education, and this is in page 63 and 64. Just what does it mean? Moses saw God face to face, spoke with God as a man speaks to a friend. And uh, Ellen White here describes the experience that Moses had in the 40 years out in the desert okay, before he led the children of Israel out. Okay, And this is what she describes. He gained that which went with him throughout the years of his toilsome and care-burdened life, which was a sense of the personal presence 
of the Divine One. Not merely did he look down the ages for Christ to be made manifest in the flesh, he saw Christ accompanying the host of Israel in all their travels. When misunderstood and misrepresented, when called to bear reproach and insult, to face danger and death, he was able to endure as seeing him who is invisible. Hebrews 11.27 Moses did not merely think of God, he saw him. All right, how so? Okay, and listen to her description of how Moses saw God. God was the constant vision before him. Never did he lose sight of his face. And as we'll talk about, this seeing God's face is his character. To Moses, faith was no guesswork. It was reality. He believed that God ruled his life in particular. And in all its details, he acknowledged him for strength to withstand every temptation. He trusted in him. Okay, and again, the relationship is based on trust. The great work assigned him he desired to make in the highest degree successful, and he placed his whole dependence upon divine power. He felt his need of help, asked for it, by faith grasped it, grasped it, and in the assurance of sustaining strength went forward. Such was the experience that Moses gained by his 40 years of training in the desert. Okay, and this was the goal for the children of Israel. Their 40 years was meant to also bring them to this face-to-face -face relationship with God. But of course, they never entered his rest. The result of that training, of the lessons they're taught, are bound up not only with the history of Israel, but with all from that day to this, was told for the world's progress. Moses' experience is to be our experience. The highest testimony to the greatness of Moses the judgment passed upon his life by inspiration is this. There arose not a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Deuteronomy 34. So again, this experience, this eternal life, really begins now for us. Okay? This knowledge of God, this intimacy, is something that we are to have today. And so not surprisingly, the new earth is described in terms of this intimate knowledge of God. Look at the next text on your list there, Isaiah 11, verse 9. On Zion, God's sacred hill, there will be nothing harmful or evil. The land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the seas are full of water. And in Habakkuk 2.14, but the earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the seas are full of water. Now, what glory would that be referring to? Glory and character really are almost synonymous. I mean, would it mean that on the new earth we have a knowledge of God's power? We all acknowledge that now, don't we? Or would it be a knowledge that God is bright? Uh, I mean, ultimately it would be an intimate knowledge of God's character. And, and we'll talk some about what this glory actually is. I would say the ultimate glory of God is that he is exactly as Jesus revealed him to be. That is God's glory. And so Jesus on his life on earth was continually pointing us to this ideal. When he said in John 15, I do not call you servants any longer. Instead, I call you friends. Okay, would you like to be a friend of God? Okay, that's pretty incredible, isn't it? And then later in John 17, speaking to his father, he said, may they be in us just as you are in me and I am in you. And could Jesus describe this relationship in any more meaningful or intimate way? That is the experience we're to have with God. 
And so people like John and Paul describe things in the same way. And look at John's words here in 1 John 5. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Okay? Why did he come? What understanding did he give us? So that we know the true God. Okay, there it is again. We live in union with the true God, in union with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God. Who is the true God? Jesus is the true God. And this is eternal life. And there it is again. Second time, notice, a knowledge of God. This is what we associate, equate with eternal life. Okay, the duration of eternal life is a given. Okay, but the meaningful aspect to it is this intimate relationship a knowledge of God, which is based on a knowledge of his true character. All right, and Paul came to the same conclusion as John. Look at the words here in Philippians 3, where Paul said, I once thought all these things were so very important. Okay, what things? All of these external things that we just talked about. I once thought all of these were so important, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Okay, again, that's the number one thing. I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I may have Christ and become one with him. I mean, the Bible from cover to cover is pointing to this as the one thing. This is the ideal. And I think it's helpful here just to think about uh, what happened when Saul became Paul. Remember when you know, Saul, he was just this person we described earlier, right? Right on down the list. Very careful law keeper, Sabbath, tithe, church, everything right on down the list. So what really happened at the Damascus Road? Well, remember, things were kind of building up to that point. Uh, remember, he was there uh, persecuting the church, and when Stephen was stoned, he was holding the coats. And um, didn't it make an incredible impact on Saul as when Stephen was dying, he watched Stephen forgive his enemies? And don't you think that um, Saul, who knew his Bible so well, must have just in the back of his mind thought, uh, well, you know, that really is the ideal, isn't it? Uh, but he suppressed that and he went off on more vigorous persecution of the church. And he probably remembered um, that that heretic Jesus, as he died, same thing, he forgave his enemies. And all of this is really working on his mind. And then finally, uh, the Damascus Road. And if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to his description of that in Acts 26. This is told a couple times in Acts, but I like this description later on. Acts 26. Maybe starting with verse 12. Okay, and Paul is uh, defending himself before Agrippa and he's telling his conversion story. And starting in verse 12, it was for this purpose that I went to Damascus with authority and orders from the chief priests, orders to persecute the early Christian church. It was on the road at midday, Your Majesty, when I saw a light much brighter than the sun coming from the sky and shining around me and the men traveling with me. All of us fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? You are hurting yourself by hitting back like an ox kicking against its owner's stick. All right, and Saul says, Who are you, Lord? I asked. And the Lord answered, I am Jesus whom you persecute. Okay, so what happened here? In essence, uh, this, these words here, why are you hitting back, uh, is God's way of saying, uh, you know, Saul, your conscience is really bothering you, isn't it? Why don't you just give in? All right, and what does Saul say? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. So what happened to Saul is his picture of God now became Jesus. The biggest paradigm shift of all. When our, our mental picture, our relationship with God becomes with the one who is just like Jesus in character. And this changed everything for Saul. And you'll recall that uh, prior to this, you know, his methods of serving God, fear, force, intimidation. We will coerce someone to worship and what was Paul known for primarily uh, in his writings after the Damascus Road? It was love and freedom. And everything had changed completely. But there was one thing that Paul would speak very strongly against after his conversion. And that was a distortion or a misrepresentation of the good news. Okay, this is one thing, you read his writings, this is what he would really get riled about. And let's look at here in Galatians 1, this is on your handout, verses 8 and 9, where Paul said, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that is different from the one we preach to you, may he be condemned to hell. And it's even stronger in some other versions. This is from the Good News. We've said it before and now let's say it again. If anyone preaches to you a gospel, a good news, that is different from the one you accepted, may he be condemned to hell. Now, I think this verse is important for a couple of reasons. One is, who was the first person, person to preach a different gospel? Satan. It was an angel from heaven, right? And so this verse would kind of suggest that. But then the other question would be, what is the gospel? What is the good news? Okay. I agree with that. But let's, let's see what, what is the evidence for the good news. I mean, intuitively, I think we you know, assume, boy, the good news is about me. The good news is I can be saved. The good news is uh, it's easy to make the good news primarily a me-centered Good news. But let's look at these, all of these uh, definitions here that we have in the New Testament. What is the good news? Okay, Mark opens up. Mark 1 1. This is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the good news is about who? Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's God. Good news is about God. Romans opens the same way. The good news is about His Son, our Lord. Jesus Christ. Through him, we have received God's kindness, his graciousness. All right? So the good news is about Jesus, who is God, because Jesus is the revealer of the kind of person God is. What kind of a person is God? He is supremely kind and gracious. And that is good news, is it not? And Romans concludes, the good news I preach about Jesus Christ. The good news is about a person. Good news is about God. And in Acts 20, Paul defines his mission where he said, I want to finish the race 
I'm running. I want to carry out the mission I received from the Lord Jesus. Okay, listen very carefully. What was his mission? The mission of testifying to the good news of God's kindness. Many of your versions have God's graciousness. I am now entrusting you to God and to his message that tells how kind, how gracious he is. That message can help you grow. Can we just think about the picture of God that the religious people in Jesus' time had? We think about those, uh, the Pharisees. Um, was their picture of God, uh, of a God who was kind and who was gracious and who was gentle and who was humble and who was just like Jesus? No, that was not their picture of God. And the people were really burdened down, weren't they, under uh, the picture of a, rather a severe tyrant. And so that this revealed good news. Hey, guess what? The all-powerful God of the universe, he's just like that gentle Jesus who's been walking around among us. And wouldn't that be just, just an amazing, uh, cause an amazing revolution? And it certainly did among those people. Okay, we go back to Romans 1. Paul describes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Christ. For it, okay, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation. Now, what does that word salvation sound like? Like a salve, right? Salvation, healing. Okay, the good news, okay, this internalization about the kind of person God is, uh, that is healing. It is restorative. It brings us into a relationship with God. Okay, for it, the good news is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For in it, in what? The good news, the gospel, what is revealed? The righteousness of God is revealed. What does that mean? The righteousness, the kind of person, the goodness, the character in the gospel, the kind of person God is, is revealed. And that good news, again, is what leads to healing, restoration, relationship with God. And in Ephesians 3.8, Paul describes again, God gave me this privilege of taking to the Gentiles the good news about the infinite riches of Christ. And again, the infinite riches of Christ referring to the infinite kind of person, the infinite heart of love of God that was revealed by Jesus. And I think perhaps the most clear verse here, and, and we'll talk about this verse several times during this week, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul describes the good news about the glory of Christ. Again, what is the glory kind of person? The character. The good news about the character of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Now, what does that mean? If we could see the face of Jesus, the nose, the eyes, is that the exact likeness of the Father in heaven? Now, this would be referring to an exact likeness of character, right? The good news about the glory, the character of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. The God who said, out of darkness, the light shall shine, is the same God who made his light shine in our hearts. Okay, for what purpose? To bring us the knowledge of God's glory, God's character. Okay, where do we see the knowledge? of God's glory, God's character. Right here, shining in the face of Christ. Okay? This is why Jesus is everything to us because he is the revealed person, the revealed character of God. Well, what is sad is that many 
through the ages have not had a picture of God that is anything like Jesus. And so this, this lack of a true knowledge of God, his character, is all the way through the Bible described as the essential ingredient that is missing. Okay, here, here in Hosea 4.6, and there are many other examples of this, but God says, My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. All right, we might wonder, what is this knowledge? Well, we just look here at another version, the New Living Translation. My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. Okay, do you see? God has been longing for this. This is not just now Jesus comes and reveals something new to us. This intimacy, this true knowledge of God, his character uh, is the ideal going all the way back to Genesis 1. And actually tomorrow, our whole day will be discussing the Old Testament because if we're really to be settled into this picture that God really is just like Jesus, I think there are a number of issues that naturally come up in the Old Testament that might suggest, well, maybe he really isn't just like Jesus. So we're going to go through that uh, very carefully. But Jesus in his life three times told a parable that ended with the very sad words to those not fit to enter the kingdom. And he said to them, go away, I never knew you. There it is again, I never knew you. And for years this bothered me because it seemed rather impersonal. God is going to come back and to all these people that uh, don't enter heaven, he says, go away, I never knew you. I mean, doesn't he know every hair on their heads? But again, the words to know here in the Bible. It is, we do not have intimacy. We're not friends. You don't have a true knowledge of my character. That is the knowledge, the to know that is referred to. So if God's going to say that to those who don't enter the kingdom, what will he say to those who enter in? Won't it be something like, I know you. You know me. We have a trusting relationship. You have a true knowledge of my character. Now, tomorrow we'll, we'll spend some time talking about the story of Job. But look at these words of Elihu, which are recorded in Job 37. Do you agree with these words? He said, I won't ask to speak with God. Why should I give him a chance to destroy me? God's power is so great that we cannot come near him. Now, let's, let's try to make this very real. Um, and let's, let's just imagine that uh, we have a tremendous surprise for all of you and uh, that we've just discovered that God himself has decided to attend this camp meeting. And so we've erected a large tent out back. And uh, right now we're all going to stand up. And one by one, you'll have a chance to go out and meet God in the flesh. Uh, would you go? All right. Would you quote the words of Elihu? I won't ask to speak with God. Why should I give him a chance to destroy me? Do you see here the importance of our picture of God? Um, Would it matter if it were the son or the father who were out in the tent? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Um, The father is, as revealed by Jesus, just as gracious and kind as the son. Okay, but again, Elihu here, um, yes, very. Zealous for God, but boy, I want to ask to speak with God. He'll destroy me. Okay, what kind of a picture of God? Well, Jesus, as the parable here of the talents, gets back to this kind of issue. Remember the person with the one talent who buried it. And when the master representing Jesus came back, 
Okay, he heard these words from this man. Sir, I know you are a hard man, and I was afraid. Okay, is our picture of God such that we see God as being a hard man? Are we afraid of God? Well, it's easy to, to have that picture. But again, if Jesus becomes the pinnacle of all truth about the kind of person of God, that fear begins to melt away. And we begin not to see God as a hard man. Okay, this list at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, verse 8, uh, it's a very bad list of things that exclude people from the kingdom. Cowards, traitors, perverts, murderers, the immoral, those who practice magic, those who worship idols, and all liars. Okay, well, notice what's number one here? Cowards. All right, now would that mean that each and every one of us must be exceedingly brave people to enter heaven? Right? Or could not the meaning be, you know, if we're afraid of God, then it shows we do not know God. God is love, perfect love, casts out all fear. All right? So if we're afraid of God, then it shows we have not come to experience and to believe that God is just like Jesus. All right, and then finally here I have these words of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3. Anyone who does not bow down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. All right, and we uh, kind of coil back. What a tyrant that Nebuchadnezzar was, right? Down on your knees or into a burning, fiery furnace. Horrible. But what is our picture of what will happen in the end? I mean, do we hear and believe that God says, you know, I want your friendship, your love, your trust. Uh, but there's one thing I have to tell you. If I can't win you to love and trust me, then I must throw you into a burning, fiery furnace. Um, that, that's a bit, you know, down on your knees or else kind of talk, isn't it? And so I think it's very important that we have uh, an idea. What is it that really happens in the end? Is it a threat um, and, and I wish, as I'm describing this to you, that we had a day to talk about um, the destruction of the wicked, but maybe for, for some other time. Well, so these, these points, the words of Elihu, uh, the feeling of the person with the one talent who was afraid and who saw God to be a hard man, uh, the destruction of the wicked, all of these questions that come up in our mind, how do we answer them? And ultimately, as we've said, it is Jesus. And I love Ellen White's concise description here. Jesus, the revealer of the character of God. And so Jesus in his life uh, is not openly saying, uh, you know, look, I'm God, but rather giving honor to the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, do we love and trust Jesus? Okay, then naturally we should love and trust and have the same feelings about the Father. And coming back to this wonderful passage here in John 17, uh, where Jesus said, I have shown your glory on earth. Okay, again, was Jesus bright in his ministry? Was he an intimidating, powerful, overbearing force? Okay, what glory did Jesus reveal? And he said, I have finished the work you gave me to do. Okay, what was his glory? What was his work? Uh, we read on, and I love the Message Bible translation here. I spelled out your character in detail to the men and women you gave me. That was his mission. That was his work. That was the revealed glory. He revealed the kind of person God is. All right, and uh, on Thursday, we'll spend the whole day going through the life and the death of Jesus. 
All right, I'll just bring up a couple of things here. In Matthew 11:29, Jesus said, "Learn from me, okay? Because though I am God, I am gentle and humble in spirit." Now, in your mental picture of the kind of person God is, do you incorporate gentleness and humility into the character of God? It seems unthinkable, right? The all-powerful God is gentle, even humble. Well, if Jesus is God, and if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, then God himself is gentle and humble. That's quite remarkable. And to the woman caught in adultery, he merely said, I do not condemn you. It seems, again, unthinkable. Caught red-handed in adultery, and he said, I do not condemn you. And we'll go through so many stories uh, in a couple days on the life of Jesus. But again, our picture should be again and again. This is God. God is just like this. And uh, slowly, I think, we begin to experience what Paul went through, this paradigm shift. Our picture of God becomes Jesus. And maybe these people that I described to you at the beginning, the Pharisees, uh, maybe they should have spent some more time looking at these descriptions of the coming Messiah in Isaiah. Isaiah 42. He will not shout or raise his voice or make loud speeches in the streets. He will not break off a bent reed nor put out a flickering lamp. Okay, that sounds like kind of a gentle one. And in Isaiah 53, he was treated harshly but endured it humbly. He never said a word. Even the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He comes triumphant and victorious, but humble and riding on a donkey. And that was God. And I love this uh, messianic prophecy all the way back in Deuteronomy 18. I will send them a prophet like you, Moses, from their own people. Okay, because uh, So the coming Messiah would be like Moses. Okay, What's the one description we have of the character of Moses? Yes, he was a humble man, more humble than anyone else on earth. And I I love the fact that, um, who wrote Numbers? Moses. All right, and Moses writes about himself, you know what, I am the most humble guy on earth. Um, And to us that sounds like boasting, but humility, certainly back in that time, this was not something that, um, well, to brag about, that's the wrong way to describe it, but this was not something that... uh, you would boast about humility. But this humility is what made Moses such a great leader. And apparently our God himself is humble. He certainly is other-centered in his love. Okay, so the point of all this is, as Ellen White so succinctly described here, Signs of the Time, 1889, the whole character of God was revealed in his son. Okay, not a part, not a small portion. The whole character of God was revealed by his son. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mentioned uh, several times that God's glory ultimately is referring to his character. Okay, let's try to build a, a stronger foundation on that. We go back to Exodus 33. And Moses here makes a very bold request of God. Moses requested, please let me see the dazzling light of your presence. The Lord answered, I will make all my splendor pass before you. In your presence, I will make my sacred name. Now, I've been growing this as a child and uh, being excited here. You know, I'm going to get to see what God looks like, the dazzling light of his presence. Okay, so we read on what the description of what God looks like. <clears throat> then the Lord passed and called out, I am a God who has 
compassion, love, and faith. I keep my promise and forgive evil and sin. All right, this is the glory of God. Okay, I've heard some describe, well, he never really saw it. He saw God's backside or, you know, something. But, but really, this description here uh, and is, you know, up, up higher there in verse 19, I will pronounce my sacred name. Name again, character. This is the character of God. Who's compassionate? Who shows, has great pity, is not easily angered, has great love and faithfulness. That is the glory of God. Okay, in another place, Haggai 2, verse 9. And remember, this is, uh, this is after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. They're coming back. The people are discouraged. They're rebuilding the temple. The foundation has been laid only. And Haggai comes with encouraging words. The future glory of this temple will be greater than its past glory. It was the past glory of that temple. This was Solomon's temple, right? Fire came down from heaven. I mean, that was truly a glorious temple. And we read the words here of the people. Remember, some of them had witnessed the older temple and they'd come back from captivity. And uh, in Ezra 3.12, many of the older priests, Levites, and heads of clans had seen the first temple. And as they watched the foundation of this temple being laid, they cried and wailed because it was so inferior to the Solomon's temple, which they knew. Right. So in what way was this later temple more glorious than the former temple? Jesus. Okay, the humble, gentle Jesus graced the presence of the later temple, right? And in that way, it was more glorious. But again, we get some idea. What is the glory? We tend to think of it as just being a brightness, a power. But that is not the ultimate glory of our God. All right, and this glory... Uh, this character of God is what David longed to see. And this is going to be our topic all week. Psalms 27, verse 4. I have asked the Lord for one thing, and one thing only do I want. Okay, this is the one thing that we should want. To live in the Lord's house all my life. For what purpose? To marvel there at his goodness and to ask for his guidance. And I like the God's Word uh, version of this. This I will seek to remain in the Lord's house all the days of my life in order to gaze at the Lord's beauty. All right, we see much of the Lord's beauty in nature and in so many things, but ultimately the beauty of our God is the kind of person he is. All right, and Paul makes it very clear, I think, what this glory is as he opens the book of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors many times and in many ways through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. He is the one through whom God created the universe, the one whom God has chosen to possess all things at the end. He reflects the brightness of God's glory. Again, not a physical brightness and is the exact likeness of God's own being. And again, not the physical nose, eyes, ears, but the exact likeness of the character of God, sustaining the universe with his, his powerful word. So, uh, in conclusion, I want to uh, read a verse to you, and I don't have this in your handout, because um, I'd like you to kind of, uh, if possible, uh, detach yourself from how you know the verse concludes, and just, just try to imagine what you would anticipate happening. Jesus knew that the Father had given him complete power. 
He knew that he had come from God and was going to God. So, and the verse goes on, he did something. Now, what would you imagine? God here recognizing complete power and he's going to act. You know, wouldn't you think um, a whole village was healed of um, disease or maybe some people were resurrected or the Pharisees were laid in the dust? Um, what does God do with all that power? Well, just imagine I stood before you and said, uh, God has given me all power. Um, how would you feel? I mean, I think some of you would be smart to head for the exits, right? Because could I be trusted with all that power? Okay, what does our God do with all power? So the verse just continues on. So he rose from the table, took off his outer garment, and tied a towel around his waist. And we read on the description here in John 13. Jesus, recognizing God had given him complete power, humbles himself, kneels down, and washes dirty feet. And of course, what's so amazing is how many pairs of dirty feet did he wash? Eleven? Twelve? Did he wash the feet of Judas? Uh, is that not amazing that our God, at complete knowledge, Judas had betrayed him, kneels down, washes the feet of his betrayer, and um, how do you imagine that he washed the feet of Judas? Maybe he squeezed to the point of pain. Or, you know, don't you think that... Um, wasn't Judas his son? You know, didn't he love Judas? I, mean, I think he possibly spent the most time and care washing the feet of Judas because he knew he was losing him. And surely that caused him great pain. So again, what is the glory of our God? The glory of our God is that he is just like this. And I think there's much to admire um, in a God like that. So Ellen White describes that our experience with God should be with the primary focus to explore and experience his character of love. Her words, our whole spiritual life will be molded by our conceptions of God's character. And our experience in reading the Bible should be with, again, the primary focus, clarity, and intimacy with our God. She says succinctly, the Bible is just the book that unfolds the character of God. Okay, we are to see and discover the character of God as we read the Bible. And finally, this last quote in Christ's Objects Lesson, which has become so meaningful to me, describing what I think is our mission, our unique mission as Seventh-day Adventists. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misrepresented. I'm sorry, misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. Okay, reminds us of Romans 1, 17, 18. Okay, what message? His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of his character of love. And I think every single one of our doctrines should all center around. Ellen White describes it so beautifully. Every single belief, the Sabbath, the sanctuary, uh, at its center is the character, is the kind of person God is. And each one of those beliefs reflects and focuses back uh, into the character of God, who is love. And so our topic this week 
Um, and, and I hope that the, the talks really are in sequence. So this afternoon, for example, we're going to talk about this great war that began in heaven. How does that relate to the character of God? So they'll kind of go through a natural progression. So I hope you're able to uh, attend the whole week. All right, let's finish with prayer. Dear Father, it does seem too good to be true that you, the all-powerful God of the universe, could be just like Jesus in character, but yet we believe it to be true. And it is so wonderful that you desire intimacy, friendship with each and every one of us. And we accept your invitation this morning to be your friends, your trusting friends, and may our experience this week bring us much closer to you. Amen.